Hello and welcome to the Crop It Like It's Hot podcast brought to you by The Crop Tech Show, an arable farming magazine and hosted by me, Alice Dyer. As always, you can get one CPD point for tuning into this podcast. All you have to do is email the name of the podcast plus your basis account number to cpd at basis-reg.co.uk. So today we are going to be looking at soil health. Improving soil health is an ambition set by the government, but it's also an ambition widely shared amongst farmers as well. But what exactly is soil health? What is the best way to measure and monitor it? What are some of the fastest ways and most effective ways to improve it? And what's stopping us improving our soils? Well, today I am going to try and find out for you. I've got an excellent panel of guests from all walks of life, so I hope you enjoy the show. Now, for the first guest on today's programme, I've got Joel Williams here, world-renowned, independent plant and soil health educator who's calling in all the way from Canada. Hi, Joel. Good morning. Good afternoon. (laughs) So I'm just going to jump straight in there with the big questions. Um, But what is your definition of a healthy soil? (laughs) Yes, that's a a loaded question, um, that one. And uh, it's, of course, a a question of great discussion lately and in recent years. And and, uh, everyone's got an opinion and no one has a firm opinion. I mean, there's a whole bunch of different ideas, you know, around this, obviously. So um, I think for me, uh, generally, I would start by answering that question, I think, at a basic level to say that firstly it, it must encompass a broader definition a broader view it can't be a little single focus or one particular metric or this or that it, I, I think it does need to say that whatever the definition is it should be encompassing some elements of the soil chemistry the soil physics and the soil biology it's it's to kind of look at all of those aspects of the soil and integrate um, as many of them as possible you know into um, a, a broader, you know, multi multifaceted definition. So I, I think for me, it's 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 a soil that has, you know, favourable chemical properties, physical properties, and favourable biological properties. So I think I think kind of at some level that's where I would start. Um, and then I think really extending from that, you've got to ask, well, it also then needs to have some functionality, and then that then that's going to depend on what function you're trying to achieve. Is that uh, function of a natural ecosystem or some um, spare land or wild land, etc., or is it uh, the function of productivity within an agricultural context and, and all of the spectrum and the continuum that exists between those, perhaps those two extremes. So, you know, it could be anywhere along that, that spectrum, but um, it definitely needs to have that kind of functionality. So I think then, um, you know, therefore it could, from an agricultural point of view, could include things like, okay, well, how well are the, the plants performing in that system? Um, are they productive? Is this a productive system? Um, do they have good nutritional analysis? You know, there might be some aspects of plant health, um, be that nutrient analysis or, okay, it could be yield or quality, whatever it might be. Um, but I think at the end of the day, you know, plants, they are an expression of that soil health and it is plants that we're ultimately growing, be that crops or be that grasses, you know, for animals. Um, so basically I would say that we're um, also bringing in some element of of the plant functionality and that plant expression of that soil is, is should also be on the radar. There are lots of, you know, tests and technology and guidance out there for testing soils. But what do you think is kind of the best way to assess soil health? What, you know, what tests should we be doing that perhaps we're not? So I would say uh, it really links to that previous answer is that, well, if we're going to, if we were to agree that um, there should be many aspects of, of soil function, soil quality that we should be looking at, then it's it follows along those lines to say that then we're probably going to need a multitude of tests or techniques and, and, and methodologies to assess that there's not going to be one magic bullet to achieve all of that now to some element there could be ones that overlap across you know all chemistry physics or biology for example but um so i think there's an element of that but i, I would argue that the best way to assess soil health is using uh, multiple 
strategies. And so some of those could be in-field, and I think that's definitely the best place to start. Let's keep it easy, let's keep it simple, let's keep it at the field level to start with. So obviously things, I think, like infiltration rate, you know, that's become a very popular one, and I think with good reason. You know, I think when you get good physical structure and good infiltration, you will see beneficial outcomes in terms of the soil chemistry, the nutrient cycling, and the soil biology, you know, living in that in that structured aerobic soil. So, um, so I do think there's good reason why infiltration does provide an overall indicator of, of all of those um, aspects. So, so I think that would be some a, a big one. I think a big obvious one. But um, you know, of course, then other things like maybe earthworm counts. Um, earthworms often considered maybe a bit of an indicator of the soil food web and what's what's functioning there. Um, so you know, again, just trying to choose techniques that are easy and, and to do in the field. So I'd lean towards think two, like I'd say those two, um, and again, some element of the plant assessment, be that you know visual assessments of plant health, plant function. At the end of the day, it's, it always comes back to what the plants are actually doing um, and how well they're functioning. So again, that could be. Uh, uh, tissue analysis, leaf analysis, or some some metric of productivity or plant health or quality kind of things. So, so, so things like that would be good. Um, but of course, we may need to integrate some lab and lab analysis. Um, and again, I would emphasize as long as it's taking a snapshot of some aspects of the chemistry, some aspects of the physics and the biology would be uh, would be important as well. So, again, if we were to kind of um, choose one, something like soil organic matter, again, is an important indicator that covers all of those. Um, there's good strong links with soil organic matter and, and various chemical, physical, or biological properties. Um, but of course, that's a can of worms too. There's different ways to measure soil organic matter, different qualities. It's not just the quantity, it's also the quality of it. And so like everything with soils, it gets complex and, and muddy very quickly. But, but nonetheless, I would say, um, Broadly speaking, soil organic matter would be an important aspect that that maybe we would prioritise. Um, and uh, so, yeah. And I, ultimately, I think I would I would focus on interlinking. I would take field observations. I would take some lab analyses, and I would try and bring these together in an integrated overall picture um, to try and assess. And and it's really then about baselining. You know, you you do that, and then you're going to watch how that changes. It's not just the number itself. It's not just doing it once it's about how these things are changing over time are you moving in the right direction what is the trend over time are certain indicators um, moving in the right direction and i think that's very important it's it's not just a one-off thing it's not a static thing this is a journey and it is about how those numbers are tracking and trending over time that then becomes really important okay so how regularly should we be doing these kinds of assessments you know, okay, that's the beauty of the field tests is that you can get out there and do them more frequently. They're, not, they're just going to cost you a bit of time. Um, so you could be out there doing that, um, uh, you know, certainly maybe at least, well, you know, like earthworms, that would be normally in the spring and the autumn are the two kind of better times. Um, okay, if you were doing plant health, some, plant, some kind of a plant analysis, you're going to be doing that in the growing season. and You could be out there doing that every couple of weeks if you wanted. Um, but in terms of maybe some of the lab analysis and that kind of thing, yeah, you, you might you might be sending off soils for analysis once every couple of years or so. You know, um, some people might do a yearly test, but maybe others maybe more like two every two or three every three years or so, maybe tracking um, how things are going. So yeah, that that really depends on on what the test is. But um, and I think that's part of the strength. You know, it's the ones that are easier, uh, cheaper. You you can do them more frequently. Uh, the others less frequently. But um, at the end of the day, it's it's about bringing those together over time. So that would be the more important aspect, I think. Okay, and then I guess the next challenge then is interpreting those results. Yeah, I, I think that that then really you're right. You know, interpreting a test is always particularly some of the lab-based results and things, you know, a uh, soil test can get rather complex uh, at times. But, you know, I, I look at this uh, in the light of the broader discussion about education. Um, yes, anything that's new or different or, um, you know, new to, to a person, it's, it's challenging at first. And as we, the more experience we have, the more we learn things, um, the more you look at them, the results, the more you do those types of tests, the more intuitive they become, uh, the more 
natural it kind of becomes to, to quite easily kind of look at things and, and see things. So it, it does come down to that personal experience um, and therefore it is about just getting out there and um, again taking the spade, you know, having a dig in the soil, looking at the roots, that kind of thing and, and making those assessments. The more you do them, um, the, the, the more experienced you become and the easier it becomes to read. And, that, and I think that's true of a soil analysis too, you know, when you're looking at a page full of numbers um, yeah, maybe it can be overwhelming for some farmers at first, um, but the more you do these things, the more you read and research and educate yourself, uh, the more uh, it becomes clearer. So, so I think the interpretation, I think it's key that farmers do invest in themselves, you know, invest in their education. And, and that means, uh, okay, yeah, time for reading and, and, and that kind of thing, but also going along to events um, going to conferences or lectures or field days, you know, visit networking groups, farmer groups. It's it is about having the support networks, but also then access to to knowledge and information. And I think that um, that's really key. Is is farm a farmer really needs to be motivated, inspired, engaged enough, and, and have a desire enough to learn, to want to learn. And if they've got that, then you know, these days with with social media and and YouTube and the, the resources that are out there to learn these days are extraordinary. So um, I think anybody can can do it if they've really got the, the uh, inclination. And for someone that's, you know, maybe just starting to really look at soil health or maybe even someone further down that road, what would your real do's and don'ts be? If I were to cherry pick out um, one of my biggest do's, um, for sure, is is this idea of one of the soil health principles, the living roots, maintaining the living root. I, I, I think that this one in particular is a personal favourite of mine, and I would argue that there's a whole body of research in soils in, in the world of soil science that is, you know, obviously trying to understand things like soil biology better, understand things like soil organic matter and, and soil carbon sequestration, all of these kind of big discussions that we're having at the moment. Um, if we look at a lot of the, the emerging and the cutting um, evidence of, um, of soil organic matter and how and soil biology and how to nurture and foster all these processes, it's, it's very clear that I think living root, root systems of plants and, and those living roots and those root exudates these aspects are absolutely critical to driving so many uh, soil functions um, and improving so many attributes of the soil biology or the soil organic matter or, or any aspect. So I think for me, there's a really strong body of evidence growing about the role of these root exudates, how important they are. Um, and so for me, I think I would especially encourage farmers to really try and embrace that maintain a living root in the soil for as much of the time as possible. I, I really think that's the number one thing that, that farmers should be doing um, because those, again, and I know that all the soil health principles are important and, again, they all integrate to, to make a bigger picture, but what we're beginning to understand of soil biology and how important it is and how responsive it is is that the, the easiest, and everyone wants to increase soil biology. We all want, it's, you know, a buzz thing at the moment. Everyone wants good living soils and functional biological soils and it's very clear that if not the best way to support that is also one of the easiest ways which is just living roots and really that's you know that kind of for me also evens out some of this discussion about do and don'ts because you know we love to debate about whatever cultivation and should we be tilling or not and and i kind of think that you know what even if you were doing some tillage or not um actually living roots help to balance out either of those scenarios um so yeah we can all agree cultivation may not be particularly um desirable but some disturbance is okay some small amounts shallow that kind of thing and one of the quickest ways to repair that damage is actually living roots and if you replace that small um disturbance with living roots and those root exudates immediately pumping out well those root systems will rapidly re-glue that soil surface together and improve that structure very quickly. So I, I think that the changes that you can see to soils um, from living roots also helps to offset maybe some of the, the practices that we um, are less favorable. So again, from that point of view, I think that that one principle, that one practice really does help to um, balance out all of the do's and don'ts. And um, it's, 
yeah, I would strongly lean towards that one. Okay, yeah. that's interesting. I really thought you were going to say cultivations, to be honest. Yeah, of course, it, that's a really important one, and it is, you know, but I, I think that small amounts of cultivation are okay if they're kept surface, um, not deep, not too disturbing, and, and minimally, of course. Um, I'm not saying we should be out there all the time cultivating, but um, strategic cultivation is kind of a word that's emerging, um, and, uh, you know, I, I think not recreational cultivation, you know, Okay, and so you go all over the world looking at various soils and things. Um, so are there any particular trends that you're seeing um, on our soils in the UK, um, particularly, you know, in arable situations um, that compare to other countries? Or do you think there's any kind of lessons that UK farmers can take from overseas? Sure, yeah. I think, um, you know, like, I guess this, links, this could link in link in a little to our discussion there about cultivation you know i think if you look at some of the drier parts of the world um like australia or the plains of canada here and and some parts of the the plains of the us too i mean under more arid environments dry environments um then this discussion about no-till you know becomes a really hot topic as well and 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 rightly so you know under dry environments um disturbing and opening up the soil um is something that really should be avoided as much as possible where moisture is so limiting uh, because you really want to conserve every bit of moisture that you possibly can and and opening up the soil in in any way is always going to lead to to more moisture loss so so we have you know this very much stronger um i would say embracing of certain yeah of kind of no-till practices in in these areas and rightly so and and if we look at the UK, obviously that, that example is not necessarily the same one. You generally have a lot of moisture, it's a high rainfall environment, etc. Um, however, of course, that rainfall itself is also a challenge and um, wet winters and more intense rainfall events. And that also, of course, becomes a huge high risk of, of soil erosion. Uh, which we which we do see a lot of in the UK. So, you know, although there's a complete opposite extreme of um, the weather condition, uh, it's maybe more of a too much moisture uh, in the UK context, but actually that practice of, you know, keeping that soil undisturbed as much as possible, keeping mulch and residue or living roots, um, that is what is going to protect that soil and um, and, and also help to, to, to boost that resilience, you know, against... Um, those high rainfall events so the, the two opposite extremes yet the, the one practice itself is um, beneficial and positive in, in either either of those two extremes so um, I, I think that's kind of testament to the idea of the soil health principles being somewhat you know universal of course they need adapting and changing it's not to say that one size fits all but um, I, I think that that's uh, just shows the, a really nice kind of stark example of despite being so different that the way in which farmers come together at the field level and, and apply these practices can um, can still be beneficial in a whole range of different um, contexts. And, and I think that you know, UK, I find it very interesting. I, if you were to ask me, you know, quite a few years ago, say say four or five years ago, because uh, you know, a question that I get asked often is like, oh, who's who's leading the world? Which countries are doing the best at yeah. the moment? This kind of thing and. And, you know, quite a few years ago, I would have said that, that compared to many other countries in the world, the UK really was quite behind in, in a lot of these discussions about soil health um, and or regenerative or, or whatever. I, I, I really, you know, there was a lot more innovation. There was a lot more happening in places like whatever, Australia, you know, Canada. Um, certainly, I would say Canada's really, really leading the way with, with an element of kind of intercropping, U.S. definitely leading the way with things like cover crops. Um, Australia leading the way with discussions about carbon sequestration. You know, there was all these kind of different elements that other countries, I think, have been um, have some real strengths. And um, UK, I felt, was always right behind, significantly, really quite behind. But I think it's quite fascinating to see um, in the recent, just in these last four or so years. I think, however, the although that may have been true at that time. I also feel that this, however, the speed of change in the UK is faster than anywhere else. I, there seems to be so much traction, so much interest, um, which this is true about soil health all around the world, 
of course, everyone's having these conversations now, but I, I do think that the speed and that rate of change in the UK is much faster now than anywhere else. And I think they have rapidly caught up, um, catching up, maybe even caught up. I, I think there's lots of really good things and exciting things happening in the UK landscape um, within this kind of soil um, kind of discussion now. So, um, so yeah, I would argue that I think UK is... Um, starting to yeah really carve out its own niche and um you know there's many handful of growers there who are really achieving fantastic results and many other farmers who are watching them and learning from them and there seems to be this really strong sense of of um of community and, and traction and learning now so um so i think that that's i think yeah uk has really caught up i think there's a lot of great things happening uh, all around the world um i think that probably the biggest thing i think that um perhaps farmers could learn um, is this um, from each other is this point this point about the sense of community and, and farmer to farmer learning peer-to-peer learning I, I think that's um, probably what, one of the biggest things yeah and that education and kind of peer-to-peer learning is something we're gonna talk about a bit later on the podcast but thank you Joel it's been really good to catch up yeah you too you too bye Alice bye now to delve a bit deeper into what results of soil tests actually mean in practice. My next guest is Head of Soil Health at AgriVista, Chris Martin, and he's going to tell us a bit about the work that he's been doing at AgriVista's trial site, Lamport Ag X. Hi, Alice. Hi, Dave. I'm good, thanks. How are you? Yeah, not too bad, thank you. Not too bad. Good. So, Chris, at the Lamport Ag X trials in Northamptonshire, you've been looking at soil health um, and its impact on crop production for a number of years now. But what sort of tests did you start doing at Lamport to kind of um, track these changes or improvements to soil health? Um, well, what we're really looking at is, is to start with a test that will give us a bit of an overview of the chemical, biological and physical properties of the soil and over the years as we've learnt more and tests have improved they've got more more sophisticated if you like um, but I think the key thing with all of it is there isn't really a holy grail of a soil health test that is going to give you everything that you want that's sort of uh, meaningful and repeatable there's just too much going on in the soil so really speaking everything we're doing is more of an indicator than a, than a definitive metric I think that's that's been really really important. Um, I think we're, we're a bit guilty as an industry of, of trying to find this holy grail of, of soil measurements that, that probably isn't going to be out there. So anything we do is, is more an indication to help with management practices rather than any definitive metric or figure. And and I know it's been said before that um, some soil tests they might say you know all sorts of things that don't necessarily make us any the wiser. Um, so what exactly are we looking for that are indicators to drive management decisions? Um, I, th- I think one of the key things we want to do is, is anything we measure has to have some sort of practical interpretation associated to it. Um, for example, at Lamport, we've gone to the nth degree of measuring biology, where we've gone to full genetics and DNA. Um, and what we've actually discovered is we've got lots and lots of, of species in there that are yet to be identified. Um, so practically, it doesn't mean anything at all. Whereas if we wind it back and go to something like a solvita respiration burst, which is a, is a, is a simple measure of, 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 of soil biology or, or aerobic soil biology, what that's sort of telling us is it's almost like a canary in the mine that if that's actually lower than the expected figure, it's indicating that there's something that's probably either anaerobic or an issue with drainage or an issue with structure in the soil and something we can actually go out there and have a look and actually make some informed decisions to improve the soil. So I think sometimes when we, we, we strive to go for things that are, are too, um, too in-depth, if you like, that yeah. they're just not simply uh, there for practical measurements or, or practical agriculture. So in terms of um, practical agriculture, what changes can be implemented on the back of those results? Um, I mean, going back to a traditional soil test, the first thing always was, and I think always will be, is pH. Because um, pH has got re- really can drive pretty much everything in the soil. Um, pH can affect the physical, chemical, um, and biological status of the soil, and certainly the availability of nutrients. And, and the pH is, is absolutely fundamental. And I guess one way to, to explain pH is, is how it can affect both the, the physical, chemical, and biological um, availability of nutrients. If we take nitrogen, for example. And, and we know that for nitrogen to become available into forms where a plant can most efficiently use it, into the ammonium and, and, and uh, nitrate forms, it takes various bacteria 
um, to actually convert it into these forms. And these bacteria, as we know, like a pH in the region of 6.5 to 6.7. So if we're outside of that kilter, we know we're not getting the most efficient form of, of our nitrogen fertilizer regime. So pH is key for, for, from a biological point of view to make sure the bugs are right, to make sure the lights of nitrogen are available. If we look from a chemical point of view and take phosphate, for example, at a low pH, phosphate will very quickly uh, make associations with other elements such as iron and aluminium and, and can precipitate out of solution and become very much unavailable to the crop. At a high pH, sort of above, above 7.5, it can do the same thing or it can form very close relationships with the likes of calcium and magnesium. And these can precipitate out and, and form things like dicalcium phosphate which is essentially very similar to what our bones are made of. So very, very insoluble and not available to the crop. So again, having the right pH, making sure that phosphate is available is absolutely key. So around again, about six and a half to 6.7 is, is perfect for an arable rotation. And from a physical point of view, if we take potash, for example, as we get a higher pH, what we naturally tend to get is more calcium or mag more magnesium ions. And because there's a hierarchy in, in, in the soil or the cation exchange, um, that the likes of calcium and magnesium would essentially top trump potassium. As you get a high pH, they will basically push the potassium off, off the exchange sites so it's more available into solution, but also more available for leaching because it's not being able to attach to the exchange sites which have been taken up by the calcium or the magnesium. So three real examples there of how an imbalanced pH can affect your physical biological and chemical status of the soil for me three major nutrients so getting it right is absolutely fundamental to everything yeah definitely and then after ph what would be the next thing for you i think probably the next thing after ph will be to look at the soil organic matter um, which brings in a whole host of benefits for the soil um, and really makes the soil function uh, and, and really will make it uh, much more workability holds nutrients holds moisture and will release moisture uh, and is really both the habitat and food source of biology. So improving soil organic matter is really fundamental for the long-term improvements in soil health that we're, we're all striving for. And I think probably the most important thing to look at in organic matter is not just the, the figure or the percentage that, that we see, but is that percentage figure related to the potential of that field to hold organic matter. And that's something that, that can be worked out by dividing uh, the clay content of the field by the organic carbon content. And on the back of that ratio, you can see whether your soil is currently in a very good position or right down to a degraded position and everything in between. And then you can start to make some informed decisions of how you can actually improve that organic matter, particularly when you look at other things that you can get from a soil test now, such as the carbon nitrogen ratio, which will tell you whether your field is, is dynamic and turning nutrients over very quickly at one end of the low carbon nitrogen ratio, or at the other end of the scheme with a high carbon nitrogen ratio, it's almost like it's constipated in that you've got organic matter there, but you're not actually utilising it for crop crop health. So by knowing where your organic matter levels are and where your carbon nitrogen ratio is, it can really help you make the right choices for bringing in the right organic material to improve the resilience and organic matter of your fields. The one, the one thing we didn't really talk about is biology, which is probably the, the driver behind everything now which, you know, that, that probably following on from organic matter is, 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 is the biology. I mean, the more we're learning, the more that it's biology that drives every process. And, and, and that's what we need to maximise. You know, and, and the way to get biology there is, is, is active roots in the soil, so that they're being fed, etc. And I think that, that, that that's one of our biggest learnings. We still need metal in the soil, but actually, if there's roots there, um, they will do so much to look after itself. Yeah, and that mirrors exactly what Joel just said, actually. And in terms of technology, we're seeing um, a lot of developments kind of across the whole sector in all areas. But what, what technology do you think could kind of carry us forward in terms of um, measuring and monitoring soil health? Um, well, one of the big things is, is scanning at the moment. There's all sorts of different scanning going on. Um, the, the most basic scanning is to look at soil texture, where a machine will, will go and measure conductivity across a field. And that will then divide that field into different soil types or different textures. And on the back of that, you can then make some more informed decisions of where to take tests from, uh, from different textures of the field. Or you can start to use that for things like um, seed rate mapping, etc., uh, where you might want uh, more soil or more seed on, on a heavier soil and, and less on a lighter soil, for example. So a really good way of, of seeing how that field is performing and, and splitting it up, make it much more accurate than just a field-by-field -field basis 
looking at different parts of the field. And that's really been taken to the next degree now with some of the satellite and, and other types of, of mapping that can happen uh, where they can actually now start to measure um, with, a, with a range of ground truthing that's required for all of these tests. But they can measure organic matter variably across the field now, as with all major and micronutrients as well. So the, the technology is really, really driving at pace at the moment where we're able to take some really, really good information from satellites and get variable rate maps for pretty much every nutrient and organic matter across the field. There you go. Exciting times ahead. That was Head of Soil Health from AgriVista, Chris Martin. Take the weed control pop quiz with Bayer. When does 1 plus 1 equal 3? The answer? When you add the Aclonafen effect. The three herbicide actives in Liberator and Procluse work together to provide highly effective grass weed control in cereals. Discover the Aclonafen effect this autumn Visit Bayer's UK website to find out more. And my next guest, we always try and get a farmer's perspective on everything. And I'm very grateful that he managed to squeeze me in midway through harvest for a chat. But my next guest is Buckinghamshire farmer, Anthony Pierce. Hi, Anthony. Hello, Alice. Lovely to have you on the podcast, Anthony. So you've just made it to the final of the Innovation for Agriculture Soil Farmer of the Year Awards at Groundswell. So congratulations for that. Thank Uh, you very much. (laughs) So shall we just start with a bit of background um, on your farm and also where your kind of soil health journey began? Okay, Um, so we are about uh, 300 hectares. mixed farm basically outside Aylesbury in Buckinghamshire and then we have another 100 hectares of combinable crops on a FBT with a local landowner. Um, So I farm in partnership with my father. Uh, He, you know, he has taken a significant backward step so I do all the day-to-day management. Uh, Historically, I think the farm at its peak was very mixed. It, we still have sheep on the farm. We probably have up to a thousand head come in over the winter to eat our cover crops, but that's all contract grazing. We don't own any sheep ourselves. So pretty much just the turkeys at the moment. As far as the where I am on and how I got into my soil health journey, Uh, I trained as a biologist, I got a degree in biology. That side of IPM, Integrated Pest Management, has always been of interest to me. And I read a book, I got recommended a book by David Montgomery. um, And I found it's wonderful in the fact that it started from a relatively safe place. I think it was his second book. Um, and it starts from a safe place that a conventional farmer can, can understand and is safe with. And then he talks you through uh, progressive steps uh, and takes you on a intellectual journey to a space that you know you wouldn't have got to if at the start of the book and that was really the start uh, from then after david montgomery i went on to gabe brown from gabe brown to uh, dr elaine ingham um and on and on into down the uh, the wormhole that is regenerative farming. Yeah, I I've taken Laningham's um, soil food web uh, online course, and then I travelled out to America to visit Gabe Brown, Ray Archuleta, and uh, Dr. Alan Williams in their Soil Health Academy, which uh, yeah provided further inspiration. Wow, so you're you're very much kind of self-taught in a way. You kind of went out there and found that information yourself. Yes, I think um, it's interesting. Someone, I was talking to someone about it, um, and we were saying that 
it's difficult. Even if you have a library of books, uh, you couldn't point to one and say, if you read this, this will give you, you know, a how-to for regenerative farming. The point is, it is very unique. It's not a formula that that someone can give. And that's probably part of the reason for my YouTube channel is because you can't... There's a lot of people who have successfully come out to the other end and they tell, like like Gabe Brown, like Tim Parton in the UK, a lot of people who say, you know, look at these marvellous results I'm getting. But, you know, fundamentally, Gabe Brown would have gone bust if it hadn't have been that he was going broke at the same time as all his neighbours were going broke. And so the bank had no interest in foreclosing. But, you know, most farmers don't really want to go through a... <laughs> <laughs> that sort of phase of the cycle. Yeah. And, and so part of my effort with the YouTube channel is I, I'm very fortunate. I have other business interests. I, I can support that journey. But even I am only putting half of my farm through the regenerative cycle. Um, and we, we will take on board the, the best lessons from that cycle. But Gabe Brown has the... Um, likes to use the statement he says take as much farm as you are willing to risk whether it's one hectare no, half a hectare or, or a thousand hectares you know only operate with what you're happy to risk so you know i'm happy to risk half of our cropping area into regenerative and you know that that's and and that's one of the also one of the advantages to the youtube channel is that we always try and compare conventional with regenerative and that's not just on a soil health point of view but that's also on a financial basis as well yeah it gives you that benchmark yes yeah because fundamentally you know especially after brexit when we're less supported uh, as an industry this is a business and we've got to find ways of making it pay yeah and, you know, you mentioned um, these practices that you read about in the books and stuff. So what kind of things are you implementing on farm soil health wise? OK, so there are six principles. Um, that's that's the, the, the starting place for, for regenerative. And so it's worth probably worth revisiting those as a, as a starting place because uh, that's we've already spoken about the fact that it's not a one-size-fits-all. So you're better off following the principles. So the first principle is knowing your context. Your soil health practices are a reflection of yourself and how you want to steward the land. So one of my contexts is I have a chalk stream that bubbles out of the ground in my father's farm and makes its way through my farm and then onto the onward. Um, and so for me, I want that chalk stream to run crystal clear. That's that's my objective. Um, second principle is not to disturb the soil. Um, so most people start with direct drilling, um, but there is a very interesting a study conducted at the Rodale Institute in the US, which is their organic institute. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they have a 60-year trial of no-till maize and a comparative trial of 60 years of no-till maize with no fertiliser. Now, only in the no till with no fertilizer does the soil organic levels rise if it's no till with fertilizer it the, the carbon levels don't rise so um we can talk about that later on but you know that is one of the reasons for minimizing your mechanical and your chemical disturbance yeah 
third principle is cover, um, covering your soil. Uh, mix it up. Number four, uh, diversity of plants, microbes, insects, wildlife. You know, try and keep. You know, Mother Nature doesn't grow monocultures. You know, neither should we. Um, once you get into soil health, the importance of the exudates, plant exudates, is it becomes apparent. Sixty percent of a plant's energy is actually secreted back out. Ten percent through the leaves, about fifty through the roots. So those exudates then feed the microbiome in the soil. So uh, simple sugars get secreted out to, to feed bacteria. Bacteria then get eaten by fungi. Fungi then feed it back into the into the roots. So you, you need if you don't have any living roots, that's that uh, biology uh, cannot be sustained. And then finally, if possible, incorporate the uh, animals, especially ruminants, if you can. In our case, if the crop is planted too soon after the animals have left, and this is with sort of sheep grazing winter cover crops, that in fact it has a negative impact on yield. Mm. So it, it's something that we're still working to to fully understand, but. There's a lot of data and studies, especially in the US, showing the positive effects of uh, cow pats and even uh, cattle saliva on the biology of soil. So, but their preference is definitely for non-medicated animals. There we go. So, either mectins have a real negative impact on soil biology so again it comes back to that you know chemical and physical interference you know i i hearing myself speak i sound like a real tree hugger and (laughs) i I don't you know it will scare most farmers off I, i don't you know that's not the case you know half of my farm remains in the conventional chemical system um but there's a lot of data out there that that supports an alternative point of view yeah i mean i don't think you sound like a tree hugger but (laughs) thank you you. so um so you've mentioned kind of these these various things that you're doing how are you you know testing or monitoring soil health um I mean, I know that you said you kind of can still compare it to the conventional side of things, but are you doing anything else to to track the process? Yes, I have to say that is probably my my greatest personal weakness is not doing more recording of soil health. Um, my every every farmer says that they farm on heavy land uh, but I, 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 I used to think that I did farm on very heavy land and to, until we I started farming one of my neighbor's farms and his was far worse than mine um, but there is a lot a farmer knows his soil and mine is definitely improving I have more field working days I have better travelability and drainage is definitely improving the I suppose and we are we have put monitoring um, procedures in place so we will be monitoring uh, we, we've got historical studies picking up on organic levels, cation exchange levels, that sort of stuff. But we will be doing more of that in future. And then on top of that, the one thing that I, my personal focus is, is water infiltration rates. I mean, that is really important. Um, and I haven't done enough of that uh, historically. So that's something that I will definitely be picking up on. Uh, we've done earthworm counts in the past. Uh, they are improving, um, and that's something uh, you know relatively straightforward. That and soil your undies, anybody can do that. So yeah, um, they're they're easy places to start. 
Yeah, I mean, speaking to others on this podcast, it's, you know, it's quite clear that measuring soil health is part of the challenge and that... Yeah, I mean, whether you go for CO, but CO2 burst and stuff like that, but the point is you each one of these tests tends to measure one element. Yeah. There's no one test that measures them all. So you might get improving soil carbon levels, but your mix of your 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 bacterial fungal ratio might be off. So it's how to pull it all together and really the best proxy I've thought about is other than soil health, uh, as it, uh, sorry, other than plant health, which is obviously the ultimate measure because that's why we're farming. We're farming to generate healthy plants. Yeah. But if you think about, uh, if you flip the argument on its head, how would you measure a sick environment? So, and look at the apex predators. Well, birds are our apex predators in the case of insects. So if you think about soil health, it impacts microbes. Microbes, a lot of insects have a, lice, a pupa life stage that either feeds off, lives in the soil or feeds off a plant. Then they hatch and we see the insects flying around and that feeds birds. It's very difficult to track your insect populations, but it's relatively easy to track your bird populations. Yeah. So, so we have taken a bird surveys of our whole farm uh, four times a year, and now we will track the population as a proxy for our soil health. Okay. So it's a bit unusual. Yeah, but, but it works. But yeah, well, they are the apex predator. Yeah. So we sh- we need to we need to see how their populations are. Yeah, and then on kind of the other end of the scale, um, in terms of the regen side and the conventional, shall we call it side? Yeah. Um, how how are kind of yields and margins and stuff comparing? Okay, so. I suppose the final step in in my journey to regenerative was a calculation that I did where I went to organic farmers and I asked, you know, what is the yield or researched what is the average organic yield? Uh, let's say five and a half tons, for example, and then my conventional average was eight and a half tons. So that's a three ton difference. So I looked at my cost of production for the chemical system, divided it by the three tons extra, and I, it was costing me about 130 pounds a ton to generate that extra three tons. Um, and I was quite uncomfortable with that. My farm is very susceptible to a wet autumn and wet winter. Yeah. We have, we like other people, have a increasing black grass pressure so my chemical spend is very high yeah and i just i thought that that was unsustainable that okay we're sitting in a at a harvest where wheat is at 180 plus pounds a ton so on that basis i i would be better off in conventional However, we also know that you know fertilizer prices have been tracked up this year, and that that probably that price, that chemical uh, break even is probably pushed up to near one hundred and fifty pounds a ton now. Now, for me, that's too much for the risk I'm taking, plowing inputs in. Would I? I would. I would prefer just to to grow it without so mm-hmm. that's my you know that's why i started the journey financially 
And you've got this YouTube channel that you mentioned, um, and I know a lot of farmers get their information from YouTube and hopefully podcasts as well. Yeah, um, well let's hope so. <laughs> and I've, I've talked a bit about this um, with the other guests as well, but how important do you think that, you know, knowledge sharing is between farmers during this time, I suppose, when we're having big changes to farming practices? Hugely important. Um, they mentioned something and it, when I was out in America. They said, "You, if you're going to start this journey, you need a support network. And I thought, what the rubbish, you know, this is easy. I'm going, I'm going to be able to go back home. I'm going to say no chemical inputs and it's going to be, it's going to be easy. See? And... I sat down with my agronomist and I said, look, I, I know every, every farmer looks over the hedge and he knows that, you, you know, locally they know that you bought my fields. So if you're uncomfortable with this harebrained scheme that I'm about to put in place, feel free to walk away, I understand. Um, to his credit, he said no and he wanted to stay with me. However, the, the recommendation still kept coming saying spray this, apply this. And I thought it was going to be easy to say no, but it wasn't. You know, you suddenly see weeds spring up and you were thinking, crikey, yeah. I could just kill those. And what do my neighbours think? And now these are all internal pressures. They're not, you know, maybe your neighbours said your farm looks a bloody mess. Um, but you feel the pressure. And so I actually set up a WhatsApp group for my local farmers, regenerative or soil-focused farmers, where we share ideas and support each other. Because actually, it when you are, you know, back in the kitchen sink, it is quite scary. So that was the first thing I And then from there it led on to the the youtube channel and i just want to reassure other people that it is possible that it you know how how i don't know how long the pain period is going to be but i'm going to document it and i'm going to show it and you know i'm quite lucky that i have a good financial team behind me so we can analyze the numbers and we can show farmers you know, what the financial reality of making these choices is because a lot of farmers don't have that ability. And I guess for all its troubles, the internet, it does have some great communities and the the willpower aspect that you mentioned is probably often overlooked as well. It's, you know, I you think it's stick... very true. The, the, the willpower is, is significantly under... Um, it doesn't have enough waiting. Yeah. Well, it's been lovely chatting. Thank you very much. Thank you for coming on. Now, it's interesting how education has been such a key point of discussion throughout this whole podcast. So my next guest is going to stick with that theme. I've got with me here Joe Stanley of the Game and Wildlife Conservation Trust. Hi, Alice. Hi, Joe. How are you? I'm fine, thanks. How are you? Yeah, not too bad, thanks. So you've recently been appointed at the Game and Wildlife Conservation Trust. So what does the new job entail for you? Yeah, so um, yeah, I'm now the head of uh, training and partnerships at the Allerton Project, which is a 300 uh, hectare uh, demonstration farm in uh, on the Leicestershire Rutland border. And since 1992, um, the Allerton Project has basically been concerned with um, demonstrating how nature-friendly farming and um, the environment, sort of a thriving environment, can coexist side by side. So, really, we've been doing that sort of research um, since sort of long before, really, it was it was as fashionable um, and as pressing as it is today. Um, so, a lot of the research that we've conducted over the years, and this is um, with a with a team of sort of in-house um, soil scientists, ecologists, and the like, um, a lot of that has fed into agri-environment schemes. Um, uh, and the options that you can get in there over the years, and has really influenced um, some of the some of the aspects of those schemes and of government thinking. So, you know, we're really proud of uh, of the research that we've managed to conduct on you know what is still a an active commercial farm, and we're trying to basically work out how you can have profitable modern farming side by side with a with a thriving environment. And obviously, a lot of that involves work on soil health. 
Um, That's right. So what what kind of metrics do you use to um, measure and monitor your soil health? And have you had any kind of interesting findings recently based on some of these practices you're exploring? I know that's probably a really broad question because you're doing quite a lot, but... Well, no, absolutely. Over, so over the years, we, we've had a number of projects. I mean, one of our one of our sort of most um, most, most well known projects was was around um, soil soil erosion, for example, from from arable fields, um, where you know perhaps the the key finding to take away was um, that you know eighty percent of of um, of um, of soil erosion um, from from fields um, experiencing some manner of gradient actually came from the tram lines. So what we found was that on heavy clay soils such as ours, the single biggest thing you can do to actually reduce that erosion other than tram lining, you know, away around the slope. But if that's not always possible, it's actually to use low disturbance tyres, for example, and that actually reduced the amount of soil lost by uh, up to 75%. So that's the sort of sort of interesting work that we, we've carried out in the past. But um, so these days, one of our biggest pieces of work around, around soil is a five-year project that we're carrying out with Syngenta, actually, at the moment. And that's around different tillage practices um, within an arable rotation so you've got the plough plot uh, a minimal cultivation plot and a direct drilling plot and we've actually you know we've come out with a, with a lot of really interesting data around that which actually is is largely in line with what people might expect um, when it comes to um, uh, establishment costs and work rates um, but it's interesting that in our case because we actually with our with our team of, 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 of research scientists on site we actually have the the actual uh, sort of peer-reviewed data there, which is great. So it's sort of less anecdotal than a lot of the, the research perhaps around um, sort of more uh, conservation agriculture techniques. And we've actually got some of that hard data which demonstrates the benefits that farmers can get and the environment can have uh, from moving towards more conservation agriculture techniques. Yeah, and that kind of goes back to what our last guest, Anthony, was just talking about, whereby... He is seeing these changes, but he doesn't necessarily have that, you know, hard data to back it up. So that's where projects like yours are so important. And we also talked about how farmers and agronomists are kind of having to relearn certain aspects of, you know, what they've always been told about crop production. Well, absolutely. And, you know, I mean, myself, I've, I've been on a, a really big uh, journey in this regard in recent years. You know, I, I come, my background on, on my family farm was of a very conservative operation, you know, plough, power harrow, combination drill, that sort of thing. And if you'd have sort of asked me, you know, four or five years ago, if I needed to change anything, I would have said absolutely not. You know, there's absolutely nothing wrong with, with what I'm doing. But frankly, you know, the weather of the last four or five, uh, the last sort of three or four winters, you know, the extreme rainfall, especially we've been experiencing, you know, I could start to actually, even in my mind, I could start to put two and two together and I could see the soil leaving the fields. Um, and I could see, you know, you could see these fields with a, you know, a cultivated hill uh, with a dry stone wall at the bottom. And you could see, you know, over the years, you started to put these things together. Well, why is there three foot of soil um, built up against uh, the field side of that wall? Um, and when you actually then start to look at some of the data that, that, that we're, we're producing here, you actually, um, you know, you start to realize that perhaps there really, you know, there does need to be more of a change um, away from, from intensive tillage, you know. So, yeah, we're looking at things like um, compared to sort of um, uh, standard cultivations versus direct drilling. You know, on our heavy land sites at Loddington, um, we're looking at sort of work rates uh, doubling. Um, we're looking at fuel use halving. And yes, although we have also seen yields dropping by around 10%, uh, and even establishment crop establishment dropping by around 10%. At the end of the day, we're actually seeing our net profit still increase by, um, although you know, a modest five percent. Um, if we're if we're sort of having half the amount of time spent in the field, and we're using half the fuel, and we're seeing earthworm numbers increase, and um, the carbon footprint of the actual production per per hectare also reducing. Well, if our if our profits also improving by you know even even that small figure of five percent, especially if you take into account the really challenging weather conditions we've had in recent years. Well, then that's quite, you know, that's a really positive um, direction of travel, I would say. Yeah, absolutely. And finally, I can't not mention the fact that you've also just written a book. Um, I have. So, yeah, tell us a bit about that. (laughs) 
Uh, yeah, it's uh, it's called Farm to Fork: um, The Challenge of Sustainable Farming in 21st Century Britain. And um, yeah, I, I wrote it um, in the first half of this year. And my intention was basically um, that that there was I thought that you know there's a lot of books around farming. Um, out at the moment but they're all either at one end of the spectrum sort of all about rewilding or at the other end of the spectrum they're about upland sheep farming which is like a really healthy healthy genre but there seems to be nothing in the middle basically talking about you know lowland mixed farming beef dairy arable that sort of thing there was just nothing there and of course you know um, that is the majority of of the sort of farming that we have in this country so I just felt that there was a, a huge gap in the market there where the general reader you know the general public if you will um, had no way really of being able to, to, to engage with you know, the vast majority of, of the farming that we do in this country. So my hope is that it will basically um, you know, tell people why farmers do what they do, how they do it, uh, and what that means for them. Um, because if people don't know about where their food comes from, uh, then they can't care about where their food comes from. And in which case, you know, if they're not really bothered about how the food gets on their plate or where it comes from, um, then they can't really care about things like, you know, British food and farming standards and, and trade and what happens to British agriculture in this post-Brexit world. Um, so that's really my intention to try and sort of explain why, um, you know, people should be backing British agriculture and why sustainable food production is, is so important in, you know, in our warming world. Yeah, and that's the thing, isn't it? I think most consumers don't understand kind of the whys behind anything we do rather than, I guess, they just kind of think about what we do that's right and you know for, for the average person in the street you know are um, are pesticides in your food good or bad you know in in food production and most people would probably say well they're bad obviously um so what i'm trying to do in in this book is to, for example to take things like um plant protection products and and explain why farmers use them and why it's important and yes why we need to use less of them and what the drawbacks of using them are excellent well, it sounds great. Can't wait to read it. Well, I think that's one copy sold. <laughs> that's brilliant. Thanks, Joe. Brilliant. That is all we've got time for for today, I'm afraid. But thank you very much for listening. And don't forget to like, subscribe, leave us nice reviews um, and get in contact and let us know if there's any topics you would like us to cover going forward. So I'll see you next time.